0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. This week's episode of National Security Law Today will be listening to the audio recorded at a breakfast event from May of 2017 that the standing committee held. This event features Melissa Hathaway talking about cybersecurity, law, and policy, Melissa Hathaway served under not one, but two presidential administrations leading cyberspace policy review under President Obama and the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative under President Bush. She now has her own company, Hathaway Global Strategies, and she does cybersecurity research at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School and at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society. Please enjoy her talk, Cybersecurity, the Intersection of Law, Policy, and Technology, and remember to find black-letter law information from this episode in the show notes. And for more information on the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, please visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Let
1: me just say that it's a distinct pleasure to have Melissa here. Um, <laughs> Melissa's been here before. And as you know, uh, she's currently at the Kennedy School uh, for the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. And she's participating in one of the Minerva projects that's looking at technology security and conflict in the cyber age. But uh, Melissa sort of embodies, I think, sort of many of the aspects that we think our committee is dedicated to, which is she combines both practical service, public service, with an ability to step back and then think about the issues in a more sort of intellectual, thoughtful, academic way, but always focusing on what makes the most sense as practitioners to go forward. Um, so she worked for both the Obama administration and the Bush administration, and she helped Obama do the cyber, cyberspace policy review for the president. And she also set up the what we call what those of us who are in government actually trying to operationalize it, the CNCI which is the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. And when I was with the government, we were trying to actually operationalize that in a way, and her framework was one of the frameworks that was being used to help organize the government. Uh, since then, she's um, started Hathaway Global Strategies, but she has put together something that is being used around the world, which is the United States, it's being used by us, but it's really sort of a cyber readiness index. And the index sort of scores countries on a, um, on a variety of variables. And um, it's now being translated into Arabic, Chinese, English, French, Russia, and Spanish. And uh, yeah, she just came back, she's been dealing with the Dutch. And it's an analytical way, really, to think through how you understand whether or not a government has actually taken the steps to have the capacity to prepare to deal with the cyber issue. So with that, um, I'm going to ask her to come to the podium, but with all true sort of uh, candor, I work with Melissa on a variety of things in the Minerva, and uh, it's just a pleasure to have a colleague that has this level of um, sort of commitment and depthness to this issue. So with that, Melissa, please come to the stand and enlighten us.
2: Thank you.
3: Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for coming out for breakfast this morning. I, I'm honored that actually everybody wants to hear me talk this morning. Um, I'm not going to talk about the cyber readiness index, but uh, it is. Uh, I've done eight country profiles, and it's the only methodology available in all 61 languages. I just finished doing a profile on the Netherlands, and I'm hoping to do a profile on China here this summer. Um, and the like, but uh, when I was starting to, Harvey and I had dinner two weeks ago, and um, I was, we was, what what should I talk about here, you know, at the um, podium this morning, and we talked a little bit about um, what was going on in the vulnerability equities process, we talked a little bit about um, with WannaCry and, you know, all of the different things that are happening to (laughs) our industry, Um, talked about the threat and how it's growing, we talked about the executive order, um, and I am happy to talk about that if anybody wants to hear my opinion on the executive order, and I published my analysis of it. But I, I thought, um, well, I was in Europe two weeks ago, it was when WannaCry hit. <clears throat> and, um, and so I, I wanna talk this morning a little bit about the vulnerability equities process or what I think is responsible disclosure. And within that, I also wanna talk about product liability So I have two themes this morning. And I think that this community needs to really start helping us think through the challenges of both. Of how are we gonna get to responsible disclosure of when our intelligence community sits and knows about a vulnerability that's core to our economy. And then second, when our economy is threaded with poor product and it's very core and we don't have product liability for that bad product in the market. So first, the vulnerability equities process VEP of what you know it, actually came about in the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative that I led for President Bush in 2008. We had a principal component of that CNCI, was that offense had to inform defense, and that we in the intelligence community and we in the Department of Defense knew an awful lot about what were the problems that our defensive posture needed to actually fix. We had it from Um, There was four real attack vectors, there was an insider threat um, of which we really knew we had a problem in counterintelligence and that we had to actually support. Second, there was the um, proximity threat of how as we're starting to move more and more into Wi-Fi networks and those are exploitable um, and that we don't really have the defensive posture, how do we start to think about that? Third, coming over and through the internet. Um, and how are we going to actually defend ourselves better um, uh, coming over and through the internet, and then fourth, from supply chain. The CNCI was all about how we could take what the intelligence community and the Defense Department knew about what we were doing to others and how could we actually shore up our own defensive posture. And as you know, we funded 17 different initiatives. It was well over 17 billion dollars And um, it was one of the largest um, uh, new initiatives under President Bush that was carried through under President Obama. Part of that, though, um, was the beginning of the vulnerability equities process. The vulnerability equities process was, well, when the intelligence community does and sits on a zero day and we know that there's a problem, at what is the point in process by which we're going to actually inform rest of government and then rest of industry? And we started to come up with the process of how we actually brought that to the table, and, um, and then how do we start to then help shore up those defenses. It began actually with, um, the, the conversation began with Conficker. And Conficker Worm, if you remember, was launched somewhere in 2007, and it was pervasive through a lot of our um, core infrastructure, and we were seeing a new variant come about you know, every couple of weeks, really and um, Conficker took advantage of a, of a vulnerability in Microsoft, as is most of the vulnerabilities are with some of these core platforms that are in the core of our infrastructure. And, um, and so that began uh, the conversation, and the conversation was, okay, so if we have something like a Conficker and we actually could use it to exploit, how do we defend? And then how do we actually inform the rest of government Um, that of here's the defensive uh, patching system that needs to go about, and then how do you actually inform industry? Um, Sad to say, though, that the vulnerability equities process didn't have a rigorous approach even in 2008 was the beginning of the conversation, and by 2016, when we finally published it under President Obama, it still didn't have a rigorous process associated with it, And, um, and I'd like to start to think about this a little bit differently and give you a different construct. Over the last decade, um, the vulnerabilities equities process was, um, was weighted in the favor of intelligence and intelligence gathering for our national security purposes. So if I had something that was actually informing our intelligence community and informing our decision-making process for national security purposes, it wins. And then second, if we really thought that it was important for a military operation or an execution operation, then we would allow it to go into operations and very rarely would we actually declassify and inform for defense, and we never actually really thought about the economic consequences if we didn't actually share it and use it. So when I think about a different framework of how I think we should be thinking about the vulnerabilities equities process, and if you look through the questions of 2016, it starts with economy, but I don't think it actually led with economy, and then, you know, what's the significant risk that the vulnerability imposes, and um, what happens if the, if the adversary gains knowledge of that vulnerability, um, and how quickly does that close down our access, and those are some of the things that we were challenged with over the last decade, but I think that it's really time now, in the face of WannaCry, And in the face of some of the vulnerabilities that are being exploited in the core of our economies, that we actually have to start to think about the vulnerability equities process in reverse, flip it on its head. And that we really have to start to look at to what extent is this vulnerability in the core of our economy? How about let's just choose in the section nine companies that were part of what we think are the top 50 companies that represent more than 2% of our GDP. If it's in the core of those companies, we have a responsibility to disclose because we've said that those section nine companies are the most important to the US economy. And if we should start to think about if it's pervasive in our electric, in our telecommunications, in our financial systems, are we going to disclose in order to ensure that the economic survivability of the country, the health of our GDP, and the free flow of goods, services, data, and capital across borders continues. We should start with the economy, and then we should move backwards into the defensive posture of the country, because if somebody, some country, can hold one of those vulnerabilities at risk, like a WannaCry virus, a vulnerability within the Microsoft operating system, that was encrypted so that I couldn't take care of public safety and public health, But what happens if I were to use that and I were to destroy that? I could have actually weaponized it and just taken all of those IT infrastructures offline in all of those different hospitals. We should be thinking about the defense second, (coughs) economy first, defense second, second, which is public safety, which is public security, which is the core operation and survivability of our infrastructures and those companies that enable our infrastructures and our way of life. And if we know that there's a vulnerability that's core and all of them pervasive within an entire sector or within across our community, then we have a responsibility to disclose. And then third should be our operational environment of use in the operational environment. And fourth should be intel. Now I know that's heresy in this community and the national security system that we have all grown up with. And we're making a trade right now about national security finding terrorists versus the economic and public safety well-being of our countries. But it's been too long that the vulnerability disclosure process has been weighted in one direction by the other. And we must, at this point, start to flip it on its head because there's too much at risk. Let me just give you a few examples. We have, the WannaCry virus that actually did affect some of the systems in the United States of America. And they were encrypted. And not one person who's paid ransom has had those systems unencrypted. So these remain encrypted. Could have been destroyed. We're seeing vulnerabilities being exploited in Saudi Arabia right now by Iran, taking down core infrastructures, transportation systems, uh, telecommunication systems, We are seeing distributed denial of service attacks and the the like being done against our core infrastructures. We had one here in the United States that was against security cameras in New York that brought whole business uh, offline. Um, And I see this as a growing trend that we're going to see more and more distributed denial of service knocking off businesses More and more encrypted uh, viruses uh, attacking our IT systems and more and more weapons being used against our core infrastructure. And we have to do something about it. So from the government side, I think that we need a more responsible disclosure process. And I think that it needs to be rigorous. And I think that it needs to be um, uh, actually maybe similar. And I know this might also be... Um, naive, but maybe we should think about it as like CFIUS, the Committee of Foreign Investment in the United States, and we actually have the Treasury Department be the chair and the ombudsman, not the National Security Agency, and we think through all of the equities that are at stake for the United States of America, not some of the equities that are at stake for the United States of America, and we bring it as a rigorous process, and when we're going to actually then make sure that we have the economy and the defense of the country first, that all of the important decision-makers were at the table. Part B, though, is, is that we have grown up in the last 25 years with an information technology environment where we have accepted field it fast and fix it later, Patch Tuesday. And I'm picking on Microsoft, but I could pick on any one of the ICT providers that they all have been given a buy, and they're fielding poorly engineered products into the core of all of our businesses, and they're fixing it later now that we're at the we're experiencing this from the companies that actually have uh, come to replace these technologies every 2 to 3 years and they know that they're fielding them with anywhere from 10,000 to 400,000 vulnerabilities that they're going to replace and fix over monday, tuesday, wednesday, thursday Can we afford to do that anymore as we're moving into the internet of things and we're having more and more things that are connecting to the internet and more and more bad product that can be harnessed with some simple virus of challenging the admin code word that's been hard coded into it so they can field it fast and fix it later? I don't think so. And so that's gonna require us to start to think about product liability and stop giving the information communications technology industry broadly buy now what's at the forces at stake here we have two very healthy markets the information communications technology market is currently worth in 2017 three and a half trillion dollars that's a lot right so i'm going to field it fast and fix it later and we have another market that's growing rapidly um, the cybersecurity product market that's fixing and layering some layer of security on top of bad product and market, and that's about 400 billion. So you have two market forces that are gonna, f- are gonna fight us pretty rigorously uh, because they don't want one to be fixed because fixing the one will li- likely eliminate or at least reduce significantly their market share in CAGR over the next X number of years. But we have to do it because if you're starting to look at what's happening in the Internet of Things, and as we're starting to make smart cities and smart grids and smart transportation systems and smart agriculture and smart everything, well, it's really dumb, actually. It's really dumb and there's vulnerabilities being pervasive through each and every one of those. So it's gonna be soon that a 12 year old can actually bring down Bank of America and a 12 year old could bring down PNG here um, and Washington Gas because we've fielded all of the core of our infrastructure with bad products and we're going to fix it later. And so when I start to think about this as a two-fold thing, now I don't have the answer about product liability and how we would go about it but we've done this in the past. We've done it for things that affect public safety. It goes all the way back to up to Sinclair and food. And we've had it for food and drug. We go through rigorous testing. We've done it for electricity. We've done it for cars. We've done it for just about everything else that's become a public good. Now, most of us don't like to agree that the internet and all these ICTs have become a public good, but they are really because they're pervasive through our society, so we need to now start to think about what is the underwriter's lab, what is the consumer report, what is the product liability, and how are we going to do it? There's one case that I think is going to really put it on um, warp speed, and that's St. Jude Medical. Um, and uh, the medical devices. Now, if you're not familiar with this, I would encourage you to look at it. This is another, we're going to never really thought about cybersecurity and um, how we're going to update, but St. Jude Medical is the number one provider for um, pacemakers. I have a heart problem, so this is very personal to me. Um, And uh, and they are doing a recall of 400,000 heart implants um, because you can in fact manipulate, kind of like what you saw in Homeland, if you ever saw that Homeland uh, episode where you know they you know, can defibrillate or they actually activate the defibrillator in your heart, your pacemaker, um, that it does have that vulnerability and they're going to have to recall and all of those people, and I guarantee you some of them will die under surgery, um, are going to have to have those implants removed and replaced. So that is the beginning of product liability. All things, as we're starting to do, if they're internet-based, RF-based, et cetera, we're gonna field it fast and fix it later, or we're gonna have these field-upgradable assets. And in your person, in your house, in your transportation system, and in your country's core infrastructures, we're going to have to start to think through this in a responsible way. First, on the government side, vulnerability equities process because we're sitting on a lot of things that really ought to actually be released for the greater good of our economy, the defense of the nation, and our operational posture. And then second, we have to fix the problem now because the problem is getting much worse, and that's going to require product liability and all the brilliance in this room to help us think through that from a national security perspective because it is our national security crisis on the horizon. Thank you very much. Great.
1: Our tradition, Melissa said she'll stay and take a couple questions. So, does anyone have a uh, question,
2: Suzanne?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we all know Suzanne's falling to step down from the government where she was involved in cyber related protection issues. In um,
4: so, Melissa, thank you. That was terrific. And um, not surprisingly, I, like you and a lot of folks in this room, have been thinking a lot, particularly in the wake of Wanna Cry, about. The vulnerability review process um, and the, you know, thinking around the government's exploitation of vulnerabilities that it discovers, and um, and I, <clears throat> I think I-, I like your your suggestion of reversing the presumptions and the priorities as we go through those conversations within government. Um, I wonder too about some other things that we might put in place, um, for example. Uh, you know, should we? Should there be a kind of a uh, default shelf life? Uh, should there be a, a, a you know fairly short window within which at least there ought to be an automatic review? And the presumption is that you no longer use that. The assumption will be that it's 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 only a matter of time before it gets into the wild and is discovered by someone else. And so you don't wait for that moment. Um, whether it's practical, to think about um, you. You can't. The government can't exploit that vulnerability unless and until it has taken. It, it has developed at least some mitigation measures for the moment at which that inevitable moment when it's in the wild. For example, um, and I wonder if you've got some thoughts on some of those kinds of
3: things. I think that shelf life is important, and let's. I'll take the Wanna Cry virus again. Um, so, uh, we lost that, it was stolen, the United States government, that was part of the cash of exploits that was stolen from um, our intelligence community, and so you think of this as shadow brokers, which is the other guys, and us as the equation group. and, um, and uh, and um, so this was stolen, and we, uh, the United States government did work on a patch with Microsoft, and, the, and that was available around, let's just say, Ides of March, March 15th, right? And I think that's that was the day it was released. Um, the problem is, is nobody knew that it was released. There was no communication campaign around the fact that there is a vulnerability Um, And now a patch available, and yes, it's an end of life system of Microsoft, but we actually knew it was in the core of our core infrastructure. So why wasn't there a communications campaign from US CERT and from the NKIC? And why wasn't there a, a communications campaign from Microsoft? And why didn't we actually do that? We could have done that. And I do believe there should be a shelf life associated with it, and certainly there should be a shelf life if we know it's been stolen. It's been stolen, man. We should burn the infrastructure, meaning we need to have a responsible disclosure process to tweet because somebody's going to be using it against us. And um, I haven't seen that yet, and I'm hopeful. There's a, probably a secondary question there's the Patch Act um, coming up, and the Patch Act is uh, in Congress right now, and it's got bipartisan um, support and bicameral, um, so you're going to see this piece of legislation might go through, but the government, our government right now on the executive branch isn't very happy with it because it does open up the aperture of formalizing the process and bringing non-traditional people into the vulnerability equities process. I actually think the Patch Act, you know, I'm sure will go through some revisions, but the fact that it has Treasury and Commerce and Department of Homeland Security sitting at the table I think is important, not just to have just the intelligence community at the table. Thank you for your question.
5: Um, Paul. Uh, So, I I have lots of questions about the product liability, but I'll save those for some other time uh, and ask again about the vulnerability process. Um, I'm with you completely uh, except for one piece of it, which is, has been explained to me a couple of times by people in the the business in, in NSA. If they have to give up their vulnerabilities, they're going to stop looking. Right? I mean, NSA is in the business of finding vulnerabilities for Mostly offensive purposes of intelligence, and then operationalizing down into DOT maybe. Um, it, I mean, certainly if they had to give up hundred percent of them, they would say yeah, it's not our job to be QA QC for, for Microsoft. It's uh, maybe it's commerce's, uh, maybe it's Microsoft's, which is the other piece of the thing. So, um, so I guess my question to you is, um, you know, what is your expectation? <laughs> Of the extent to which, in a revised equities process of the sort that you describe, uh, the uh, uh, vulnerability hunters <laughs> uh, will uh, continue uh, the aggressive hunting that they are that they're uh, currently engaged in. Uh, I guess my expectation is they might slow down a bit, and that might not be a good thing in the end. So I don't know.
3: So. <clears throat> I think that um, we wouldn't slow down, it just requires a different set of intelligence tradecraft and that you need to be thinking more holistically of all of the different types of intelligence capabilities we have and that we've become overly reliant on SIGINT and that perhaps if we're going to you know, do what's right going forward for the economics and overall defensive posture of the nation, that you're going to have to invest more in human and other operations in order to continue to facilitate your ability to warn um, and and inform our decision makers about the plans and intentions and capabilities of our opponents.
1: Well, we have representatives from the community as you can imagine in the room (laughs) and I'm recognizing one right now. why don't you self-identify as gay? Yeah, yeah.
2: Michelle Van uh, <laughs> no longer in the business, but I remember enough of it to <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> wanted to say uh, that uh, a fascinating conversation, and, and I really appreciate your presentation on this. But it's tough to sit here and listen to the notion that we should we should invert the equities considerations. Um, so so. Um, immediately, because uh, in addition to Paul's concerns of how is this going to affect NSA doing its business, I worry about the security of the nation. Because SIGINT has been America's great advantage in intelligence across the decades. And we are in a position right now, post-Snowden, where NSA is is, is just back on its heels trying to make up for those losses. So if you were to put on top of that the notion that now is going to be the time when we start exposing these discovered vulnerabilities, I would profoundly worry about the security of the United States. So I guess the question is, how do you propose assessing the trade-off cost to national security from from the kind of approach that you're discussing?
3: So I'm profoundly worried about our national security because we've already lost the tools and the exploits and we're not actually using them now to shore up our economy and our defensive posture. So we need to really take a look at it's gone and how quickly are we going to actually start to work with these vendors in order to close those holes so that they can't be exploited against us. I think if you start to look about the methodology um, that was uh, how the section nine companies were derived, that that needs to be perhaps inform our thresholds for responsible disclosure. We didn't arrive at these companies magically. You know, There was a thoughtful process about it and what they represented for public safety and for the core of our political and economic centers of how they operate. And then, what they represent for GDP of the United States of America. And those are just some of the criteria uh, that went into the Section 9. I think that that needs to be informing our thinking about how we actually um, start to address the vulnerabilities that could be sitting in the Section 9 companies. Do you all
1: know what Section 9 is? It's um, d- Section 9 of Executive Order
4: 13636.
3: Thank you. I was not going to come up with the number. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh,
4: where the yeah. President asked. Department of Homeland Security to develop a list of entities where a successful cyber attack could be expected to have catastrophic
3: consequences. Nope. Nope, Is that this public No, it's not. But it's, but it's, it's a
1: classified index. Uh,
3: uh,
1: and,
3: and it was highlighted again in the executive order just signed out by President Trump that the Section 9 companies um, needed to be re- it needed to be refreshed and relooked at, which was called for in the last two years of Obama administration. Um, and so, and then the, the way that the U.S. government works with those Section 9 companies of how they should be shoring up their overall security posture is in the current, exec- the newest executive order. Great.
4: The
3: list is updated every year.
1: Yeah. I have a question, as fate would have it. Um, how do you see the evolution of, shocking, how do you see the evolution of artificial <clears throat> intelligence and the sense that people are putting big bets that AI is gonna be able to improve the software writing? Where do you stand on that?
3: Improve the software writing? Yeah,
1: remove, remove uh, the possibility and decrease the number
5: of zero days.
3: Well, I think that we have actually MIT and even uh, Mudge and his uh, Nonprofit of how he's working about the underwriters lab have actually had the code check Um, and um, if you were to sit in um, Bruce Schneier's class or um, (laughs) or even uh, Jonathan Zittrain's up at Harvard they would highlight how Windows 10 actually didn't actually pass the Mudge test um, of how many vulnerabilities were in Windows 10 that we're getting ready to—it's gonna to be pervasive through the UK government and the United States government and the such. So I think we already have some tools available to us of doing the right thing. I think there'll be more tools available for us to do the right thing. The question is, is can we actually sort of change the way that the marketplace um, is operating right now and have them field something that's well engineered um, fast um, and that it has does not have to be fixed uh, every Tuesday. Any more comments? Any comments from Corporate America?
1: Oh, we do that. actually. Thank all you. All of representing Corporate America. Uh, all of co- representing <laughs> corporate America.
4: <laughs>
5: you might say Is who, that Section Nine?
4: You
1: might uh, say who you are, for uh, the record.
5: Uh, I'm Marie Kelly,
4: and I just have a question. Given your doubts, and you know, discussion okay. of the commercial software vulnerabilities and otherwise, what is your thought about the executive order? Is well,
3: so the same. There was a, um, so thank you, Maureen, for your question. Um, there was a really great uh, blog yesterday by Trend Micro and, um, that talked about that there's a current exploit running rampant in the managed security services in the cloud. And because they basically figured out if you can then get to the core provider of the cloud, then you'd get to all of the subordinate clients within it. And so I look at these as control planes. If you're in the military, this is a choke point of you know where are your, command- where are your key nodes, um, centers of gravity. And the centers of gravity are starting to change. They are the internet service providers. They are the cloud providers. And they're the, where the core of the economy is running or the core of your business. And we need to start thinking through that. I'm troubled by some of the shared services and things. I think that they're important from a cost efficiency and, um, and cost savings perspective and, um, and the like, but they rarely considered uh, security and resilience. Uh, we should all take note of the British Airlines uh, outage of last week. Uh, it cost them, it was 100 million per day uh, outage, and it was two days outage. Delta Airlines had the very similar thing. When you start to make all of these move to the cloud and move to a key data center, and you don't think through disaster recovery, business continuity, resilience, security, <laughs> then you're gonna have a really bad day. Um, and so as we start to look at the executive order and one core p- component of it was within the American Technology IT Council that's going to be uh, run by Chris Lydell, that they need to ensure that they are building the security and resilience into those shared services, that it's core to it, not a secondary thought or we'll get to it later. Um, it has to be a, you know, two sides of the same coin, part and central to the overall movement. Right now I don't see that necessarily as part of the conversation. The broader part of the executive order, um, there, uh, I look at it as a, generally a delay tactic. Um, it was there's 14 studies in having led the cyberspace policy review for President Obama and I tied up the majority of the government for 60 days um, working on the cyberspace policy review. There are more than 14 cyberspace policy reviews in this executive order. We do not have the talent within the United States government to produce all of these reports. We need to actually start to get down to the business of actually executing the more than 100 recommendations that came out of the last 10 years and the last two presidents. Okay, what a very kind of up
0: way to end. <laughs> Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the black letter laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA